This morning's message we've entitled, as you can obviously see from reading the bulletin yourself, Growing in the Knowledge of Jesus Christ. Peter, in his last epistle, which is Second Peter in our Bibles, both started in John, I mean in Peter, Second uh, Peter chapter one verse two, and then closed in Second Peter three eighteen, in appealing to his readers that they would grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted them to grow in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted them to grow in their understanding as to who Jesus was. His desire for them was to understand more of the person of Christ, more of the nature and character of who Jesus Christ was in order that they not just might understand him, but that it would affect their lives because Peter knew, as well as John, the more we know about Jesus Christ, and who our Savior is, and who He is as a person in His character, the easier it will be for victory in our own life and many things that we come across. Jesus has been instructing His disciples throughout His ministry on earth as to who He is. He's been verifying what He has been teaching them by His actions over and over and over again. And we've experienced some of those visual aids and some of those experiences that the disciples have had through the Word of God here in John's account. And as we've come to this chapter, John chapter 11, especially if you've been with us, you realize that he is continuing on in his instruction as to who he is. Jesus and his disciples were away and they had received word that Lazarus, the friend of the Lord Jesus Christ, had come into a sickness that was indeed life-threatening. And Lazarus had indeed died, and we saw how Jesus waited two more days before coming to Bethany, so far in our text. I remind you, even as I open this up with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, or for the benefit of those who have not been here for it, that the main character in John chapter 11 is not Lazarus. Big mistake. Lazarus is a byproduct. The main character in John chapter 11 is Jesus Christ. From beginning to end. And Lazarus, in fact, has nothing to do with anything other than obeying, as a dead man, the voice of God. So the main character is Jesus Christ. So as he arrives now, as we've taken it through the first 16 verses here of this passage, he is now arriving in Bethany. And we want to focus back, since he's the main character, is what does this passage tell us about Jesus Christ? How can we grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ from these particular verses? Well, there's an awful lot here and we hope we'll be able to get through it, but there's an awful lot in this passage that I think can help us with growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that I want to address as we get into this passage is that we can grow through watching the sensitivity, as I have there in your outline, the sensitivity that Jesus Christ has to each and every individual within this chapter. Isn't it not true that sometimes in our life 
we feel lost, not in the sense of maybe losing your salvation if you're saved, but lost in this world. I mean, we're one of millions and millions and millions of people just in the United States, right? Or just in New England. There are so many people, and we have our own personalities. We have our own uniqueness, good or bad, for what that might be. And sometimes we wonder if, though we know theologically, and though we know intellectually, if we've been in the Word of God, that God knows us and all about us. Sometimes we just get lost in the maze, and we wonder, does He really care? I know I'm supposed to believe that, and I... And I know it does tell us in scriptures that he knows everything about me from before the time I was born. He knows even the thoughts before I think them. He knows my uprising and my sitting down. He knows when I'm in darkness. He knows when I'm in light. He knows everything about me. I know that's what the scriptures say, but I really wonder sometimes as I'm walking through life, is that really so? Is he really concerned with me personally? And I think this is also a passage that can help us with personal salvation as well. Does he really know my ups and downs? Well, I think the text helps us with that. Much scripture helps us with that beyond John chapter 11. But I think one of the things that John chapter 11 does for us is help us in this particular area to show us the sensitivity that Jesus Christ has to each of us. Now, I've already mentioned the characters that we find in John chapter 11 to you. But I want to just give you an overview right now, and then you watch as we continue to expound the Word of God to you. The characters that we find in John chapter 11, as we already said, one of them is Martha, one of them is Mary, another one is Lazarus, another one of the disciples that are there, and then we also see that the crowd is there. We pointed that out in the very first message as we started chapter 11. I want you to see that Jesus will meet these needs of each and every one in a different way. And let me highlight them right now. For example, let me start with the disciples. He's already been instructing them, and now they are there to observe this miracle or sign that points to the fact that he's the Messiah. They are going to observe another profession of faith. They are going to observe another one of the I Am statements of the Lord Jesus Christ to help them increase their faith. The crowd is in the midst of this situation, they have basically come for one purpose. Don't forget it. They came, why? To mourn the death of Lazarus. They are not there for any other reason. They're not there because Jesus there is there. He comes while they're there. They're there to mourn, but Jesus is going to turn that around, and later on at the end of the chapter, as we will see, he will even pray and say, I'm glad that he was dead, not just for the sake of the disciples, but for the sake of the crowd that they might believe. And while they came as mourners, they are really there specifically as spectators to one of the most magnificent miracles that ever took place. And, catch this one, to be witnesses for Jesus Christ that there was a resurrection from the dead. Lazarus is there as a dead man. He's just going to be raised. That's all. No big deal. Just going to be called forth after he stinks. Mary, as we look at Mary, watch for this now this morning, Mary and Martha. Mary's quiet. She's laid back. She's the one sitting at Jesus' feet. 
And watch how the Lord shows compassion toward her. Watch how he's sensitive to the type of person she is and how compassionate he is and yet encouraging. And then you've got Martha. She's the first one we're going to come to. She's busy. She's energetic and often criticized by us in this day and age. She didn't sit at the feet of Jesus. She was just busy, busy, busy. That's true. But notice who runs when she hears he's coming. Notice how sensitive Jesus Christ is going to be to her and who is going to be the first one to say that you are the Christ, the Son of God. It's the busy one. It's the one that's still got a heart for the Lord. Different, see? Different personalities. Different circumstances. And watch how the Lord, even with her busyness, is still tender to her and gives her instruction and encouragement to help her along in her faith in the situation. It's different and unique with each and every one of them within the chapter. So, the point, Jesus Christ is interested in every one of our situations as we look at the overview right now and is concerned. So let's look at the first one, the conversation with Martha, as we pick it up in verse 17. And let me take it from verse 17 down to verse 20 uh, to begin with. And then we'll make some comments and continue on. So when Jesus came, he found that he had been that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, she doesn't wait. She went and met him, but Martha stayed at home, or as I said, basically Martha was still back home sitting down. That's what the, that's what the context is saying. So what happens? In those verses that we've read, we've seen them a couple of times as we came into the chapter. But Jesus arrives, and he's arriving not yet in Bethany, but on the outskirts. He hasn't come into the city yet. How do we know that? Martha comes to meet him in verse 20, and look at verse 29 again, and what 29 says. And when he heard it, uh, when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. And then verse 30, now Jesus was not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha had met him. So Martha doesn't even wait for him to get there. She's so excited about Jesus Christ that she runs and he hasn't gotten into the city yet when he's having this confrontation or is being confronted by Martha. Okay, so what has happened is Lazarus has now been dead four days. Now I want to expand on that, though I've mentioned it a few times. The messenger, when the messenger went to Jesus, as he was leaving, Lazarus was already dead. And we saw how the Lord loved Lazarus, not with just phileo love like the, like Mary and Martha talked about or the disciples talked about or the, the crowd, but he says he loved him with agape love. That's how he loved the family. And because of that, he waits two more days, which didn't even make sense to us or to them. And now he has his trip and it's taken four days. Why wait the four days? Let me give you another possibility of why he waited four days. And it's not the only one. It's obviously part of the sovereign plan of God. I think one of the other possibilities for this waiting four days uh, is because of some of the rabbinical writings or rabbinic writings that existed, especially in the Old Testament. Now, whether this was believed in the time that Jesus was here or not, we're not sure, but it is in the rabbinic writings. And what is it? Here, let me give it to you and I'll quote it to you. They believe that the soul, and according to the rabbinic writings, they believe that the soul of a person 
hovered about the body for three days. Why did it hover about the bodies? With the hope of re-entering on the fourth day. Because the fourth day was considered the start of a body decay. Now again, that's what they thought. And so what would happen? On the fourth day, if the person was still dead, the soul would then depart and death would occur and it was irreversible. Now that's a rabbinical writing, rabbinic writing. Now, please understand, especially if you're just here visiting, that was a tradition. That was not reality. There's a big difference. That's not what the scriptures teach, but that's what they believe. But the point is, even in the Jewish Old Testament, some of their rabbinic writings, they thought that it was possible that somebody could be resurrected in three days, but never on the fourth, because decay started. Now that being true, if you think about the audience, if some of them did believe that, what they saw, and that is why you've got verse 39. What's verse 39? It's not for our teaching today, but look at it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time, and here it is, there will be a stench. He stinks. He's decayed. It's been four days. So that's why that four days is repeated over and over again. His audience knows that there's absolutely no way that this man can be resurrected apart from the divine power of God. No magician can come in and do this. Their own writings would be such that they knew that this was now beyond the possibility apart from God's intervention. And so that's what's going to happen here in this particular situation. So what happens, that's why it's repeated again. He's been in there four days in verse 17. Now he's near to Bethlehem, uh, in Bethany, near Jerusalem. We see that. And you notice in verse 19, I want to spend a minute or two on this this morning. It says that Martha and Mary were there and Jews, many of the Jews, consoled them concerning their brother. Notice that it was close to Jerusalem. We've already talked about the distance and so forth. I won't repeat that. But many came and consoled them. I think the reason it says it was near Jerusalem is we, we realize, and I told you it was near the Mount of Olives and so forth, that it was very easy for them to get there. So that might have been one of the reasons many of them got there. Also, they were a well-known family. We've seen that already. Thirdly, they were probably wealthy. We know that from chapter 12. Because in chapter 12, they're hosting again. They hosted the Lord Jesus. And that's where you have that very expensive ointment being poured on the Lord. And they wouldn't have been able to afford that unless they were wealthy. So people believe that that's a lot of why they were there. What I want you to look at for a different perspective for just a moment is an application right away. I want you to notice that we see that Lazarus is dead and Mary and Martha are there and they're hurting. And what happens? Jews come and console them. They come and console them. By the way, I don't know whether the disciples did or not. But it doesn't say that they did. They're just observing. Remember the disciples before? Who sinned? This man or his parents that he's born blind? While they've got Jesus Christ standing right there. Jesus Christ in just moments is going to cry. And by the way, it's an interesting term because it's different from the one that's used of the Jews. 
They had a wailing, professional wailing going on. He literally cries tears of sorrow. He's compassionate. The disciples, no indication they're even showing it. Why say that? I want to give you an application, folks, because this is faced all the time. Death. When death occurs, we need consolation and comfort. You will need it. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who do rejoice and weep with those who weep. And we know that. We could probably, you probably could have quoted that if I said the verse to you. And what I want to say to you as a congregation, how indeed you need to be sensitive when someone loses a loved one. We as believers need to be sensitive. Now, I know this is the Jews, but again, application. I believe that we need sensitivity to others' needs, others' hardships, difficulties, and sorrows. And I'm going to be honest with you. Many times, it's not there. From professing believers, it's just not there. Sometimes, it's not only not there, but sometimes Christians are very cold. Sometimes they're insensitive. And even outright cruel. Other believers, when they've lost a loved one, now, I hope that's never happened to you. It has happened to me. But I'm saying this because as a pastor, I see this. We have people that go, they die, they go home to be with the Lord, or they lose another loved one. And I watch and I observe. And there's some things I've even brought to the Board of Elders for challenging for us as a church in this, in this specific area. I'm going to tell you, we need to see that when someone loses a loved one, we need to be sensitive to those needs. And I want to give you a couple of practical things this morning. Here's a couple of practical suggestions, and I'll get right back into the context. Only because it happens with us. If you have someone in the assembly or someone that you know that loses a loved one in death, number one, be available to them. Sometimes that's when people are less or least available to the person that needs it. They're just so busy, they say, oh yeah, we're sorry, we'll pray for you. And on they go. No more thoughts. Maybe they pray. Back to their schedules. You need to be sensitive and available. Number two, be a good listener. These are just a couple of practical points. Why? I've seen situations where the comments that people said did more damage than help. And I understand that. Sometimes when people lose a loved one, we don't understand what to say. We don't know what to do. And that's all of us. I've been in situations like that. I've gone into situations and I prayed about it before I got there and I said, Lord, I just don't know what to say in this situation. You know what? Shut up. But be there. Just be there. You don't know how much that means. I'm going to share something with you that happened. I haven't forgotten it and, and I didn't even plan on saying it and the Lord just brought it back to me when I was here up in the pulpit this morning. And that is, it's a friend of mine who's not saved. My brother-in-law. But he had his sister that died. I wasn't, I was saved at the time. He wasn't. His sister got killed in an accident. Then his dad died. And I remember very specifically being in, I didn't do it for this reason, but just being available to him, went over the house, and I was there when his father died in the other room and he came out. We shed some tears together, but, and I was just quiet. 
And one thing he said to me, he said, Dan, I'll never remember the friendship. Never forget the friendship. You've been there when I needed you. And I didn't even say anything. And what I'm trying to say to you, you need to be sensitive because that's going to happen to you. And you need to be there for people. And sometimes just be a good listener. Yes, pray for them. Also, another practical thing you can do is offer a meal. Now, I know we have something in the church for that, but offer a meal. And what I want to finish with is just this in the practical area, because this is where I feel we fail as a church. And sometimes many, many, many people as believers fail. After the funeral, do not desert the person. Oftentimes, someone's gone home to be with the Lord, and all of a sudden, we never see him at church again, and you know what? Nobody ever contacts them. They were sensitive until the person was there and the funeral was over, and now they're forgotten. That is when they need you the most. That is when we need one another the most. Check up on them by phone. Send an email to them. Take the time to invite them out with you to some functions. Take the time to just be with them and visit them. Send them a note to show them you care. Pray with them. And if possible, if you're a ministry leader, seek to get them in your ministry so they don't get lost in the crowd. That's just a little side trip. Sorry. But as I prayed about it this, this week, and, and when I saw that, consoling them, how often we fail to console one another in one of the most important times in a person's life. One of the most important times. That should be the time that we really put our schedules away and become available to someone. Because that's when you need it. That's when your Christianity will show through. Well, it's interesting. These Jews come and console him. Now what happens? Martha comes to him, and we she's a go-getter. She's busy in verse 20 all the time, but she doesn't wait for the Lord to come. She basically goes and she meets him. She runs to him. She heard that he's coming. And although she's got a different personality, she comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't misunderstand. She does not criticize the Lord Jesus Christ. She's just making a statement. She's not critical. She's actually expressing her faith in verse 21. Martha said to him, Lord, if you had been here, she says, my brother would not have died. Why? She knew who Jesus Christ was. And she believed it. We're going to see that in a minute. She believed who he was. And she came running to him. And she simply says the same thing that Mary's going to repeat later. She says, if you had been here, you wouldn't have died. You would not have died. Why? She knew the confidence. She knew the love that Jesus Christ had for her brother. She knew that Jesus Christ had done many miracles. And she knew that he could have prevented this situation from happening. But I want you to know something else. Verse 22 is huge. Verse 22. Even now, I know. What does she say? I know. I'm confident. What? That whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now let's first of all interpret the passage properly. Is she saying, I know that if you ask the Father, He will raise Lazarus from the dead? No. That's how most interpret it. That's not what he, she's saying. 
you say, well, it's got to be what she's saying. Why else would she say it that way? Well, the context, context, context defines it. Why? Notice what she says in verse 34. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She knows he's going to rise, but she's looking to the resurrection on the last day. I'll come back to that verse. But the context shows you that that cannot be what she means in verse 22. Further, go down to verse 39 again. In verse 39, it is Martha that speaks up. And she says, when Jesus is about to raise him out of the grave, she said, Lord, by this time, he will have a stench. Why? He's been dead for four days. She's basically appealing to him, Lord, don't bother to even go there. You see? So the context defines that that cannot be what she means, though there are many commentaries that interpret it that way. She can't mean that he's going to raise her from the dead. Well, then what does she mean in verse 22 if that's not it, Pastor Dan? She says that she understands the relationship that Jesus Christ has to God. She has not quit on her faith because her brother's dead. That's huge. She says, I know even now, even though he's still dead, I know who you are. That's going to lead to her profession of faith to say that he's the Christ. I have not given up on you because he's dead. If you had been here, he would not have died. But he is dead, and I want you to know that I know still, even now, if you ask anything of God, he'll do it because I understand who you are. Now, why is that huge? It's huge for a number of reasons. Because she still has confidence in her Savior when things didn't turn out the way she wanted. Did you get that? Have you ever prayed for a situation or watched and it didn't happen the way you wanted? And you're a professing believer. And all of a sudden, you start to lose your confidence in Christianity. Start to lose your confidence in God. Do we still have confidence in the Lord when things don't turn out, number one, the way we thought they should have? Number two, when they don't turn out for the better? In their mind, it was the worse because he died. It wasn't the better of the circumstance. What would happen if you got news from the doctor that you had cancer and then you started praying, Lord, if it be possible, help the treatments to work. And they don't work. And you're going to die. Will you continue to say, yet I know that you still have that relationship with the Father. I can still trust you. Though it didn't turn out the way I want. Most of the time, we look, let me give you some examples we look at situations like Daniel in the lion's den. Praise God, he got delivered. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Praise God, he got delivered. How about Stephen? He got stoned. Did he still trust God? Yes, he did. His last words were, Lord, Father, forgive them. Don't put this to their account. And he died. John the Baptist. Did things turn out the best for him? Well, you say he went to glory. Let's put it in a practical sense. He had been preaching and he knew. I'm going to decrease. He's going to increase. I can continue to trust in him. And even in prison, 
when he was about to do what? Lose his head. He trusted Jesus Christ to the end. How about John at Patmos? He was exiled. And I'm taking him because he's the one that survived as far as we know as the disciples, the apostles, the longest. He's at Patmos. That was not because he was there for vacation. He was there in prison. He was put in the Isle of Patmos and God continued to use him. That's how we get the book of Revelation. Why? He continued to trust his Savior when things didn't turn out the way he thought they should have. Or the way he would have liked them. I think it's huge. When you see it in its context, Martha is appealing to him and he says, she says, Lord, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. But I know your relationship with the Father, and no matter what you ask, he's still, you have such a relationship with him. She's not saying take him out of the grave. She's just expressing her love. And that's why the Lord comes back too. That's where he moves us. And now we move from his compassion and his feeling with her to instruction. That's the second part of what we learn about Jesus Christ. And it picks up in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now we know because we have the end of the chapter. He's going to rise momentarily. Is she thinking that? No. Why? Because she says so. Verse 24. Martha said to him, I know. Isn't that interesting? I know your relationship with God. And I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Let me just take a moment on that for a second. Very important. Our world thinks that death is the end of everything. It's not. Did you know that every human being that comes into the world is meant for eternity? Eternity. You're either going to be with God forever in what we call heaven and God does in His Word, or you're going to spend eternity in hell, in the lake of fire. I don't care what this world says about this is hell on earth, and there is no such place as hell. They're just trying to entertain themselves. I'm telling you today, even if you're hearing it for the first time, you will die and you will be in one place or the other. You will not be in a place called purgatory because it does not exist. If you trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, did the Old, Saints, Old Testament saints believe that? Absolutely. Where do you think Martha got it from? She didn't have the New Testament to look at. She believed it. Let me turn you to one passage. Go with me to Job. Very, very revealing passage. Job chapter 19. There's so much here, I think. They said, I don't know if we'll finish it all, but Job 19. Verses 25 to 27. Most people are familiar with Job, but in case you're not, he was a man that was one that worshipped God and everything else. He had a lot of problems. His problems were that he did nothing wrong, but Satan wanted to get at him and was able to do so and took away his children, took away his possessions, took away his cattle, took away his health, and he's down in the pits suffering pain beyond anything that you and I have ever suffered. 
And in the midst of this, he gets some friends. And before we bow down to criticizing them, they first thing they did was right. They were available and they kept their mouth shut. And then when they started talking, they got into trouble. But they were there for him. Give them that much. And you come down to verse 25 of this passage and notice what he says. Watch carefully. As for me, Job says, he feels he's going to die. I know that my Redeemer, what? Lives. He liveth. He was confident. Decaying body. I know beyond any shadow of a doubt. We just sang the song. Redeemed. I know my Redeemer lives. Do you know that your Redeemer lives? Very few slow on that one. But I'm not going to force anything out of you. But the reality is, if you are a Christian and you're saved, your Redeemer lives. He's not in the grave. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. He doesn't stop there. Watch. Verse 25. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Now watch this one. Even after my skin is destroyed. What is he saying? Even after the worms had their feast. I'm really being pretty graphic. Even after my body is gone. Watch this. Yet from my what? Flesh I shall see God. How is that possible? Only one way. Resurrection. Verse 27. Whom I myself, I myself shall behold, he says. I on my side is the literal translation there. On my side. I will see him, he says. And not another. My heart faints within me. What have you got? You got a man that's suffering, and what I want you to see was an Old Testament passage. He believed in the resurrection. And whether you do or you don't doesn't change it, but the reality is the Old Testament saints believed in that. So Mary says, because she knew the Old Testament, Daniel says the same thing. There's other passages as well. They believed in a resurrection to come. And she says, I know in the last day that you'll raise him up. Jesus turns that around though. And while we see her faith expressed in verse 24 in the Old Testament, he gives us one of the most powerful statements in Scripture in verses 25 to 27 in his instruction. Jesus said to her, watch, I am the resurrection and the life. That's his response. It is the fifth I am that we come to. We saw him as the bread of life. We saw him as the light of the world. We saw him as the door, the only one that you can go through. We saw him as the good shepherd, and now we come to the fifth one. He says, I am. Again, he uses the expression, ego me. I am the resurrection and the life. He not only will be resurrected, He is the resurrection. He is the one who provides life. He is the one who gives resurrection. He is the one. Jesus Christ. What is your hope? Is it in medicine? Is it in preserving the body somehow that later technology will find? It won't work, folks. Your hope has to be in the same place that her hope is going to be in just a moment as she expresses it. It's got to be in Jesus Christ who is the resurrection and the life. And then he makes this statement, and I personally believe he's dealing, some say this is the rapture. I think he's dealing with the physical and then the spiritual. And he says here in verse 25, on the resurrection and the life, 
He who believes in me will live even if he dies. There is no soul sleep. Even if you die, you will continue to live. Why? Because life goes on. And a believer has eternal life. And the believer will be in the presence of God. Why do you think Paul said to live is Christ, but to die is unfortunate? No. To live is Christ, to die is gain. How can that possibly be? I am going to be in the presence of my Savior. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Even if you die. That is why these graveyards that are around us and the loved ones that are in it, first of all, that know Christ. When Christ sounds forth, the dead shall rise. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then if we're alive, we'll be caught up together with Him to be with the Lord forever. Then He says, And everyone who lives and believes in Me will never die. And He's speaking spiritually, I believe, there. He's not saying you will never die physically. He's using both the expressions. If you die physically... It's okay, because you're going to live. And if you don't die, you're still going to live, because you're going to go on forever. Basically is what he's saying. And it brings her to the point of this. Verse 27, as we see the end of that instruction, if you will, right here. And what is it? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and He who comes in to the world. What is the point of John writing this book? Does anybody remember? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through His name. That's the whole purpose of the book. Guess who got it? The one who's busy, the one who gets criticized all the time, the one who's just busy and involved Different personality. Jesus Christ is so tender to her. He knows where she's at. He knows, if you will, he's got to kind of put his arm around Mary in a few moments. But right now with Martha, he knows how energetic, he knows she's teachable. She is. He knows that he's come, she's come out to meet him. He knows that she's already expressed. I still believe, even though I know he wouldn't have been dead, I still trust in you. He knows that. And he says, you're never going to die. And she says, I've got it. I believe you're the Christ. I believe that. And that you are the one who is the Son of God that's come into the world. And folks, I'm going to have to round it up right, wrap it up right here. That is where she had to come to, and that is where people need to come to for salvation. Jesus Christ not only has the power to raise the dead. He'll do that with Lazarus. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the only one. It's a person. It's not religion. It's not your goodness. It's not my goodness. It's not some theological expression and doctrine, though it is. It's not just that. It's the person of Jesus Christ. How can He be the resurrection and life? Because He is God, very God. That is why God always hears him. That is why, though the body's going to be in the grave for four days when we get to the actual physical resurrection, and it stinks, and it requires divine intervention, Jesus Christ can call him up out of the grave. 
Because he says, all that the Father has given me, I will bring forth. And he already taught us in John chapter 5 that all who are in the graves will be resurrected. And don't marvel. All of them. Every single one. And that's what he meant by that word all, by the way. Every single one of them. Some to life, some to death. Some to heaven, some to hell. Some to the presence of God, some to the lake of fire for all eternity. But everyone's coming out. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Your hope needs to be built on a solid rock. And that solid rock is Jesus Christ. That is what Matthew said. When we had that responsive reading, what Peter said. Thou art the Christ. And he says, you know what? Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. All your study on your own didn't reveal that to you. All your going to... Uh, worship services didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. Why? Because you're a dead man. And all people who are walking around with physical life that they're not trusted in Christ are the walking dead spiritually. And God has got to be the one to open up that heart so that you can see that Jesus Christ came into this world. God so loved the world. He sent His Son. And He went to the cross and He paid the penalty that would satisfy a righteous and a holy God. And by faith, by belief, just like Martha, by, by, just like Peter, by, by belief, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life. And whether you die or you don't die, when Jesus Christ comes back, you will be with Him and live forever. Because of who He is. The resurrection and the life. What a Savior. So sensitive to a woman that was so eager and anxious, but notice her faith. She never lost it when things didn't turn out the way she wanted them to. You and I will be hit with situations that will come and they won't turn out the way we wanted them. Different from what we thought the Lord would answer them with. But don't let that waver your faith one bit because Jesus Christ hasn't changed and whatever He asks of the Father, the Father will grant Him. Because of who Jesus Christ is. And if you haven't come to faith in Christ, trust in Him. He's the resurrection. He's the life. And all of us, be reminded, death is all around us and will continue to occur. Be sensitive. Be available. Be compassionate. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself is coming on the scene. You're going to see His compassion next week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Bob Dimlick, would you close us in a word of prayer today, please? I'd appreciate that. Just stand and we'll pray with you. Hmm. Amen.